Welcome to Elevate Your Event, your favorite podcast for transforming fundraising events. Join us weekly for expert tips and creative ideas to make your next event a standout success. On this episode, we join CEO and founder Jeff Porter on the NX Unite panel, Funding the Future, Strategies for School Fundraising and Development. The panelists delve into creative approaches, share success stories, and maybe even challenge some conventional fundraising norms. Enjoy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to our panel. My name is Melody Grasha, and I serve as an NX Unite team member at Nexus Marketing and your moderator for today's panel. Today's panel topic is Funding the Future, Strategies for School Fundraising and Development. Jumping into introductions, I'd like to first introduce Betsy Oliver, who spent most of her 20-year a fundraising career in the field of education. Since 2018, she has served as a consultant for various schools and nonprofits, and it's currently the Director of Fundraising Services at Purpose Possible. Thanks for joining us, Betsy. Hey, y'all. Also with us today is Jeff Porter, who is the founder and CEO at Handbid. He's no stranger to fundraising events, having participated in them for over 25 years. He ran his first fundraiser in 2005 and has managed over 50 auction events and fundraisers for his own charities, and not to mention hundreds more with Handbid. Jeff, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure to be here, Malou. Also with us today is Rebecca Fowler, who is the SVP of Strategic Development at ShopRace. With over 20 years of fundraising and marketing success, Rebecca's goal is to help organizations grow their revenue, thus allowing more time to focus on their mission. Rebecca, so glad you could join us. Thank you. And finally with us is Sarah Buswell, who is an account executive at Gravity. She has spent her career helping education and nonprofit industry clients work smarter and achieve results through innovative technology. Thanks for joining us, Sarah. Thanks, Malou. Excited to be here. All right. Now it's finally time to hear from our panelists. And Betsy, I'll have you start us off with the first question. How has school fundraising best practices changed over the last few years and what have we learned? Yeah, I think that I would probably answer like many of my of, of uh, my my colleagues here on the panel and say that technology is probably one of the biggest um, changes. I would say changes for good um, that uh, we've seen in, te- in in fundraising for independent schools and um, higher ed as well. Um, I think that one thing that's really interesting is the the ability for um, many of our schools to integrate their um, you know, their admissions um, systems um, and databases. So kind of not only admissions and enrollment with the sort of fundraising database that we often use. And if they are two different ones, being able to mesh those together has been a huge help um, for many of our clients um, to not have two different systems talking to each other, but rather to be able to really integrate those two systems so that, um we, you know, are talking the same language, we're using the same information, that we're using clean information, that we have the correct um, databases and information. Uh, along those same lines, one thing that I've seen that I think is, is, is really great when you're thinking of the alumni aspect, whether it's for an independent school, whether it's higher ed, whether, you know, K through eight even, um, is the ability for um, many of the 
uh, schools, whether it's a alumni office or fundraising, to use almost like a a um, tailored LinkedIn on their own. So I've seen a lot of um, these, you know, alum, online directories have come so far in the years. So what used to be maybe you just have your link log on online and you, and you, and you could have a, your name and address, maybe, you know, um, has come to where it's almost like a, um, a personalized LinkedIn page for the university, for the college, for the, for the, um, for the school, which then allows not only the college or the school to, to stay in touch with the graduates, um, which of course engagement leads to, uh, you know, affinity leads to, to, uh, fundraising, but also for them to stay in touch with each other, which is just kind of affinity that you want to continue on um, surrounding the school, whether it's with their classmates, whether it's with their friends, whether it's with teachers, former teachers, whatever it might be, so that they can really um, have that affinity. And when you do go back and ask them for for uh, for annual fund gift or maybe a capital campaign gift or an event host uh, ticket, they're more likely to do so. So I think the use of technology is just grown tremendously and, and helped a ton. Absolutely. Thank you so much for starting us off, Betsy. Sarah, I'm going to bring the same question over to you. What have we learned oh. in the last few years and how has school fundraising changed? I, I see from a lot of our K-12 partners this intentionality that didn't necessarily exist 10, 15, 20 years ago. I think the the old hat, sort of the playbook that we always went to was we go to our parents and we go to our alumni that have maybe aged out of college and are ready to sort of give back to their independent schools. But now I'm starting to see more folks reach out to the networks of our parents, reach out to our young alumni. There's an intentionality that it's not just parent participation, but there are so many other networks and footprints that we can grow our, our impact within. So I think technology plays a huge part in this is oftentimes the way that our parents are connecting with their neighbors and friends and grandparents is through technology and it's sharing fundraising and it's sharing campaigns. And it's just sort of bringing this, this presence of a school to a digital world. So that's, I would say, intentionality is my big takeaway that I've seen is schools are working really smart rather than really hard to, to raise funds. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sarah. All right, Rebecca, over to you. How has school fundraising best practices changed over the last few years? Um, you know, in addition to what said, Betsy and Sarah, I would add what I have seen too, I think it's made it uh, more efficient for the fundraising team in a school to work, uh, really work smarter, not harder, and also to communicate from uh, from year to year to the other team, what what they've done, how it's done, and it's really more efficient. I remember when my kids were little, the old days you'd have pass a binder or a, you know here's a whole box of um, of paper, and you know which is fine. But what's nice now is you can track everything, so you know you want to be really intentional, like you said about what you're doing, but. You want to uh, make sure that you are actually fundraising in a really smart way. Not everything works from year to year. Um, so technology is really a great organizational um, tool, which I think is so important. With you know, we work with a lot of volunteers, especially in the K through 12 space. And you know, you want to be mindful of people's time. So you want to use the right technology and you want to work with company companies only that offer 
the right technology? Because if they don't, you really want to kind of reevaluate your decisions. Thanks, Rebecca. All right, Jeff, final thoughts on how school fundraising best practices has changed over the last few years. Yeah, you know, I think COVID has made people um, or kind of forced them to try virtual and so to use technology. And so I think what that opened a lot of our clients' minds to or eyes to, I think, is the fact that, hey, this actually isn't that hard. Um, And so in the past, you know, we would always be battling wrapping paper and popcorn and all the other things at the K-12 level that people felt were way easier to sell than, you know, to go out there and actually host a fundraiser. And then when they started looking at what the digital tools could do, they came back and said, wow, this actually isn't that hard either. I can use digital technology, whether it be an online peer-to-peer walk. Maybe I don't even need to have the cheerleaders show up and do backflips in front of the kids and, you know, and kind of do this really expensive, you know, move-a-thon or walk-a-thon. I can do it virtually, save a lot more money, right, as it relates to um, what I'm paying these fundraising companies to do. And, you know, maybe maybe I make 50000 bucks, you know, when I used to use some of these, these big fundraising companies and I would net and take home maybe... 30,000, but now I'm making $40,000 and I'm only costing me five. So, and I think in a lot of cases we saw that. And we used to go to a lot of these trade shows and people would be like, I don't know, it's just easy. I just, the popcorn company shows up and they just put out all the materials and the kids go home and sell it to their neighbors. You know, and I said, but the problem is, is that for, for every dollar you make, you're paying the popcorn company, you know, 60 cents. You know, is that really what you want to be doing? So, I think that's been the, the the biggest best practice we've seen is, hey, you know what, I can do this, you know, and maybe at a gross level, I'm not making quite as much, but at a net level, I'm making considerably more. Wonderful. Thanks, Jeff. All right, we're off to a great start. And Rebecca, I'll have you start us off the next question. What innovative strategies and tools do you see schools adopting to enhance their fundraising efforts? And how are these strategies shaping the future of school fundraising? You know, so many. And again, you you have to go back to technology. Uh, It is, again, the number one game changer in the fundraising, school fundraising industry. So I, a lot of, you know, I, in social media as well. So I think what has changed, um, and the tools that you can actually expand your audience, right? Like we said earlier, it's not just reaching out to parents anymore. You can actually put your fundraiser, uh, expand it out to, you know, let's say you want to expand out to your family and friends that live across the country, because that is one thing that we have learned at ShopRaise that people want to support nieces, nephews, um, alumni, you name it, but they can't physically, like Jess mentioned earlier, you know, you can sell popcorn to your aunt in California. That's ridiculous if you live in Chicago, like I do. So that is really what I have seen is just the technology and the, the opportunity to expand your fundraising all over the country. Thanks, Rebecca. All right, Jeff, over to you. Any strategies and tools schools should adopt to enhance their fundraising efforts? I mean, should I go ahead and just shamelessly plug and say you should be using mobile bidding technology at your event? But um, no, I mean, even beyond that, I mean, you know, I think all of us on this panel would say technology has helped. The question is, is when I think that from a best practice strategy standpoint is how you're using the technology has definitely evolved. 
Um, what we saw in the beginning was a lot of people willing to try technology, but they didn't want to make any other types of changes that were going to like, I would say, best utilize what the technology can do. Like, for example, like peer-to-peer fundraising, peer-to-peer fundraising, which you can use for like a move-a-thon or a walk-a-thon or whatever, works really well when you have competition, okay? But when you hide all of that because you're afraid that somebody's kids is going to get offended because some other kids raising more money, you start to kind of, you know, I would say diminish the opportunity. And so we, I mean, I remember we had one client and they forgot to like, you know, privatize their event on our platform. And in one night, I think over the, actually over the weekend, I think they, they generated about $30,000 for their, for their move-a-thon, which is more than they made the year before. And then they all freaked out on Monday and shut the entire thing down because they were afraid some of the kids were going to be offended. And you know, look, I understand that and, you know, and there's privacy issues and whatnot, but this day and age, you know, in terms of how that stuff works, what we've seen happen is now you're starting to see schools say parents are creating the pages, you know, the competition works, you know, we're not going to make it unfair, but we're going to leverage what we can in terms of how technology works to really maximize this. It's all the same thing with auctions. I mean, I remember the very first, one of the very first auctions we ever did with a hand bid they came in and said, we want to only allow people who are physically at the event to win items. And so it's like, well, that's really not how auctions work. The highest bidder should win. Well, we want them to come, right? Well, I mean, a lot of that's changed over the years, but that's where you start to see that, you know, hey, it's not just the technology, but it's leveraging what the technology can do. The early bidding, you know, the competition, you know, especially around fundraisers and peer-to-peer that really is going to drive your results. And we've, you know, I would think, thankfully, we have very few of those conversations anymore. Thanks, Jafarit. Betsy, over to you. What strategies and tools schools should adopt? Yeah, I'm going to piggyback off of um, a phrase that, that Jeff used, which is, of course, peer-to-peer fundraising. I think whether it's <clears throat> among parents um, for, you know, parent giving at, at K-8, K-12, um, whether it's um, among alumni at, again, K-12 and uh, colleges, that is the key to um, a really successful um, campaign. And I think there's all kinds of ways to use um, peer-to-peer, but I think that it's so important, kind of that community-driven fundraising is crucial in um, schools because it is such a tight-knit community. Uh, so really kind of what Jeff said, I think that... Um, whether it's through social media, as as Rebecca mentioned, so that other people, whether it's across the country, can can join in um, getting alums, or you know, if it's if if it's an alumni base, getting them from all over. If it's parents, um, but using technology or using old school and old school, you know, you're at the school right there. Do a thermometer. Uh, take your online thermometer that Jeff's kind of talking about. Put it right there in the front of the school. Whatever it might be to generate excitement. Um, to generate kind of positivity around the campaign, um, around the event, around the, you know, gala auction, annual fund, um, whatever it might be, um, to kind of do that in a community-based way, um, whether it's, again, through class agents, whether it's parent callers, or phone-a-thon, whatever it might be, really kind of going um, going back and and working with your community, within your community um, of, of parents, students, alumni, uh, grandparents, um, to 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 kind of again generate excitement around the events, I think is really the key key to go. Um, and in a way, 
you know, you asked about innovation and in a way it's kind of going old school, right? Like, let's just get everybody involved and get and get the community. But there's a way to take it into the 21st century again with social media, with um, online platforms, um, with using some of the various, uh, you know, alumni directories and, and things like that. So. Thanks, Betsy. All right. Sarah, what would you like to add to oh. innovative strategies and tools to adopt? I, I would add... At Gravity, we'd refer to this as gamification, at this idea of how can we build participation. I speak to more and more K-12 schools where they are looking for new donors. And that extends outside of K-12. That's in higher ed. That's in nonprofits. Everyone is looking to build their pipeline, recognizing that for a lot of organizations, our pipelines are aging. How can we find that next generation? And a big part of that is, I think, gamification. This how can we build excitement about what we're fundraising for, not just the, the, the cause itself, but the action of giving and building this philanthropic uh, environment for a school. Uh, I am all in on having or, or pitting class years against class years or alumni groups against alumni groups. Gamification also allows you to go out to your major donors and say, would you mind contributing an additional $10,000 to help us build this competition, unlocking $10,000, unlocking $5,000 or $25,000. You're giving the opportunity for those major donors to, to feel as though they are playing a, a huge part in the organization. It creates, I think, more of this compelling ask when you approach them. And for those folks on the that are just making their first gift, whether it's $5, $10, they feel like they are playing a big part in unlocking this larger challenge, making a huge impact. I know when Giving Tuesday rolls around for me, I'm always looking at the challenges. I'm always looking for the, where can I double my donation, triple my donation, match employee donations, et cetera. And those are all terrific strategies that I think schools are starting to employ. And we're recognizing that gamification is a real key to, to sort of grow this, how much money we can inevitably fundraise. Um, in terms of tools, I would say the rise of technology reflects the age of our donors. We see younger donors that want to text to give, that are more willing to do peer-to-peer -peer fundraising on their own online. Uh, video stewardship, video outreach, those are tools that are completely new if we look at the last generation and the way that they prefer to, to communicate with an organization during our fundraising seasons. So I, I think that's a, a lot of excitement around innovation and what we can do as orgs. Fantastic insight, Sarah. All right, here's our next question. And Jeff, I'll have you start us off with this one. If schools have a goal of engaging donors personally and building long-lasting relationships, what tips do you have? <laughs> How about using tools that actually store their information? That's where I would start. Um, you know, I think in higher ed or private ed, they have that. You know, it's, it's not atypical, but um, a lot of our competitors, they don't store that information. It's event by event. You're registering again and again and again. And it, I mean, as me as an end user, it's frustrating because, look, I just registered for your event a month ago. Why am I having to give you all my info again? <clears throat> and then because you, you're asking me for that info again, that tells me that you're not even tracking what I'm doing, um, which makes it hard for me to actually build a relationship with you because you can't build a relationship with me. Um, so at Handbit, I mean, we did that from the start, you know, which I think was a little bit different in our space where people were like, 
you know, they, they, they felt that like events and mobile bidding and kind of showing up at an event and registering was just a really, you know, kind of one-time transactional kind of thing, get them in, get them bidding, you know, but our point was, is no, get them in, get their information, make sure it's accurate because you're going to want to use that as a starting point for a relationship. And then, and then beyond that, once you have that data, what are you doing with it? I mean, there's so many charities that then go and they capture that data and they don't do anything with that information. So how are you re- re-engaging with your donors and how are you doing it in a way that's easy for them to connect with you? You know, so if you're making it difficult to connect, I mean, I literally, honestly, I'm not going to pick on my university. I love them, right? I got a, I got a like paper postcard respo- response request from them, like a survey. I mean, okay, this is way too much work for me. I, I got to fill this thing out, check boxes, put it in the mail, put a stamp on it and re- and send it back. No, thanks. So, you know, that's the kind of thing where I think everybody needs to sit back and say, um, you know, maybe it's an Instagram reel. You know, maybe it's, you know, kind of these, you know, email lists. Maybe it's a Facebook group, you know, may- whatever it is, you know, make it something where people can find you, ex- you know, and kind of connect with you anywhere they're at on their phone. Um, and do so in a way that's just a couple of clicks away. Thanks, Jeff. All right, Rebecca, on to you. Any insights on engaging donors personally and building long-lasting relationships? Yeah, um, I think first you have to understand your donors and how each generation is different. Um, you know, just building on what Jeff said, you know, I'm not going to communicate with maybe a boomer as I am with a Zoomer, right? I'm going to have, it's a different way of communicating with them. And I think that's really important. Um, so find out, you know, you know, find out a little bit more about who your donors are or who your supporters are in general. And give them also, don't forget to give them free tools of engagement. Not everything needs to be a fundraising request. It doesn't always have to be that ask, but because you do need to get to know and you do need to know how to communicate to those people. And I will put a shameless plug about ShopRaise. We offer a free tool that really uh, allows, you know, supporters to engage with their nonprofit or school because every time they shop online, they're engaging with the logo, the brand. So look at free tools like that that allow you to engage. Engagement doesn't always mean fundraising, but engagement and branding does lead to fundraising eventually. So understand your supporters communicate in different ways. If you've got younger supporters, create a fun TikTok video or two and share it with them. So I think that's really um, an important thing to keep in mind. Who are you communicating? And don't forget those alumni. And, you know, I just wanted to share something. Somebody mentioned the trigger is. One of our first accounts was a test. It was my son's hockey team, high school hockey team. That was a while ago. He's graduated college and grad school. That's how long ago it was. But do you know that we still have people from his hockey team that still use ShopRaise and shop online? And they're some of our biggest supporters. Their kids have gone on and, you know, left the school a long time ago. So, but we will commute, you know, don't forget those people too. People who's had a good experience at your school could be some of your biggest supporters long term. And it doesn't necessarily, we're not talking just nonprofits, we're talking K through 12. So that's my tip. Thanks for sharing, Rebecca. All right, Sarah, over to you. Any tips on engaging and building long lasting relationships with donors? 
Before I move on to my my sort of response, I wanted to piggyback off Rebecca and say one of the best pieces of, uh, pieces of advice that one of our partners had given us for other K-12 schools is he sort of is the, the director of, of student affairs, student services. And as students graduate, he tells them, I will not ask you for a dime for the first 10 years that you are considered an alum. That is when we should still be serving you. We are here to support you, make sure that you complete your college education, that you're into the workforce, that you have a good foundation. But just know that year 11 comes around. I hope that you'll look back and and evaluate where you are in that stage and wish to give back, wish to contribute. And so I, I just think that's such a fun idea is... We hope, we expect that you will give back to us someday. But from now until the, the end of that first decade, build your foundation and and credit where this is coming from and where this is going from. But alumni always, uh, they're they're always going to be a great source of 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 funds. I would say of people that we can continue to go back to and build a relationship with. In terms of of sort of building out our our communication and our relationships, good data. That is sort of what Jeff had said earlier is if you if you can't trust your CRM, if you don't trust your donor data, it's sort of shooting yourself in the foot and making it really hard to be more efficient and more uh, personalized down the road. I see some organizations that are doing incredible work with how they are following up with donors. First and foremost, I hope everyone sends their thank you immediately following gift receipt. And then that good rule of thumb is before you make another ask, you're you're telling them where those dollars went. Where have they been spent? I, that's always a good rule of thumb is thank. Tell donors where these dollars have been spent, the cause they've supported. And then maybe we start to, to work in some storytelling. In the case of schools, I love to say is if your CRM is collecting data of student participation, clubs and activities, college and universities that students went off to attend, start bringing in, maybe it's a a teacher that taught calculus and the student is now graduating in a, a math degree, or maybe you have a past athlete and they're getting a thank you letter from the athletic director. But those stories are really impactful if we can identify what a family or what an alum or or student, what was important to them in their experience at the school. So I think personalization, the, the focus, the key, the starting point is our data and collecting good data and updating it as, as we have more information on donors. Thanks, Sarah. All right, Beth, Betsy, we want to hear from you as well. What are your thoughts Ooh. on building long-lasting relationships? Well, I think that um, the alumni development teams at schools and universities have a real vested interest in making sure and doing everything they can to create an awesome um, student and family experience. Um, while th- that might be difficult, you know, they're not as hands-on in the classroom or on the, on the, on the field or things like that. But um, just try to get to know as many folks as you can, as many parents, grandparents, um, you know, family members, uh, students themselves get to know them, be um, be a member of the community. Um, th- this is really, I'm kind of talking to the development officers and the alumni staff here, but get to know them and, um, and you know, remain familiar and a helpful face throughout their time at the school um, so that when you do kind of make that ask uh, years later, and Sarah, I have to say as a development officer, I don't know if I can wait 10 years after, but <laughs> but when you do make that ask however many years later or when you're, when you're you know, inviting them back to campus or whatever it might be, that you are a familiar face and you have played a part 
in um, creating an, a great experience for them at the um, on campus. Um, again, whether it's K K eight K twelve or or college, um, and I think even the same way with with alumni. I mean. I think it is important to educate current students about the role of philanthropy and kind of what they're they're benefiting from. Um, and hopefully these students will serve as future kind of volunteers as, as well. Uh, I know this is something a lot of colleges and universities do really well where they, um, maybe it's Founders Day or something like this. And I can also see where, where um, private schools could do it as well, but where you you point out, you know, places on, on, on camp, around campus that benefited from philanthropy and that, um, you know, how philanthropy maybe signs. I've seen signs around campus. I've seen bows on campus where um, showing how philanthropy really made a huge difference in, um, in the um, in the the physical structure of the campus, in the history of the campus, um, or the school. And so I think that that is all really important as is educating and creating a, a, an environment where philanthropy is welcomed and understood too. Thanks, Betsy. All right, Sarah, here's our next question. How can schools successfully integrate digital strategies into their fundraising mix while preserving the essence of traditional approaches? Mm. I, I think the term omnichannel is going to become more and more apparent in the world of fundraising. This idea that technology is not meant to replace our fundraising efforts. It's meant to aid our fundraising efforts. I like to think back when direct mail was all the rage and that's where we spent all of our budget and all of our fundraising dollars were going to mail solicitations. And then we have the phone-a-thon introduced and, and then you see email introduced and it's always this thought of, well, email's here, so that's really the death of the phone-a-thon and phone-a-thon's here, so that's the day, death of the print piece. But all of those pieces play an integral role in our fundraising strategy. It's a matter of evaluating technology. I think that's a terrific starting point is evaluating your calendar of outreach and evaluating technology and being open to researching technology. Having those types of phone calls where you're just learning about what type of technology is out there and how they might help your organization. I'll take a lot of calls throughout the year where folks are just saying, we're really interested in AI. Could you tell me more about what you're doing? We're really interested in video stewardship. Can you tell me what you're doing? And so that's always a, just a good starting point is learning about the technology that is out there. Um, in terms of gravity, I would say easy plug-in points are always things like video stewardship these days. Video is very hot. Uh, we know that this younger generation responds to video as our texting or text messages. I think some of the data points show that text messages are opened within the first three minutes of being sent and they're opened at a 90% rate. So those are the types of numbers where it's our email campaigns might be really low. What might we want to swap out or limit to introduce this new strategy as texting or video? So I think it's always just a balance. It, it starts with learning and then it, it, it goes into this and how does it, how does it add to our, our campaigns rather than take away? Thanks, Sarah. All right, turning to you, Betsy, any advice on how to integrate digital strategies while preserving traditional approaches? Yes, absolutely. Thanks. And I'm going to, um, again, I'm going to kind of piggyback on on what Sarah said is that it should not, you know, technology and digital um, resources don't need to replace um, some of the tried and true forms, but they really can enhance them. Um, 
Uh, one suggestion I would have is to schools could research and then possibly invest in kind of a digital um, fundraising and volunteer management system. Uh, Give Campus is one that is really great. Um, and again, going back to what I said about how uh, successful I believe peer-to-peer fundraising is, particularly in a cool in a school setting. I think a tool like this is super important um, to look at. And again, it just makes your your traditional uh, you know class agent uh, peer-to-peer. A method, which is again a very, very successful way and traditional way of fundraising in schools. It just brings it up to the 21st century and makes it easier and more seamless for everybody. Um, I would also say thinking thinking about, especially as we're coming off of year end, um, but text campaigns, I'm sure that uh that Jeff can can speak to this, of course, a lot of uh, what what he does, but um, text to give, I think, especially as we're looking at, you know, Gen Z um, and and younger millennials, um, uh, text to give is really important and uh, and making sure that, as Sarah mentioned, omni-channel, you know, there is that making it very easy to give, um, especially around um, important days like your end, like Giving Tuesday. I know a lot of uh, particularly colleges and universities, but independent schools as well have kind of their own day of giving, maybe around Founders Day or, or anniversary or something like that. I think those are really important. And of course, as you have, you know, galas or uh, auctions or, or big fundraising events, those too. So. Thanks, Betsy. You're right, Jeff. Anything to add in how schools can integrate digital strategies into their fundraising mix? Yeah, you know, and it was the second half of the question that you know, I kind of chuckled at a little bit um, because we hear it a lot, which was the, while well, preserving the essence of traditional approaches. And it's like, okay, so what do I really want to preserve that's traditional? Um, you know, and so as I think about the question, I kind of start there thinking like, okay, so what about traditional fundraising do I want to preserve? The revenue, uh, the relationship, um, the connection that I may have with a donor, um, and then why does digital necessarily eliminate that? It may not. Um, but to Rebecca's point earlier, you kind of have to know kind of where your donors are at and how you need to connect with them. Um, so it's not kind of one of those things where we say rip the Band-Aid off and toss all of your traditional fundraising methods out the door and replace them all with digital. But you've got to have a plan on how you want to kind of manage and facilitate that. And you do need to stay ahead of your donor base. Okay. And so what we see a lot of times happen, and this is kind of like classic corporate innovators dilemma, right? You see in the corporate world, you see this in the nonprofit world, like with an order of magnitude more, which says, these are my donors. This is what they like. This is what they're comfortable with. And I don't want to change that. You know, we heard that conversation. We still do, right? Well, my donors are a little old. And so they don't really like technology and they really don't want to use their phone, um, so at an event, I think we're just going to go back to paper bid sheets. And it's like, okay, so what's the tradition there that you're trying to preserve? It, is it less money? Because you're going to make less money on, on paper bid sheets, right? Is it the, the fighting and the stress that goes along with people having to like elbow themselves around inside of an auction area and trying to bid on stuff? Is that what you're trying to preserve? I don't think so. I think what you're trying to do is say, I don't want to make my donors uncomfortable, okay? And they like this. And so that's the area where we would say the innovation is going to outweigh the uncomfortableness, right? I mean, my dad is 82 and he deposits his checks on his phone now, right? I mean, COVID made him do that. He knows how to use Zoom. He knows how to order a Starbucks coffee on his app. Like these things all happen, 
right? And so, yes, at some point, some people are going to be uncomfortable with that. But as you integrate, you have to say to yourself, where do I want to be in three years, five years, 10 years, right? Who are my donors going to be? What do they look like? What are they going to prefer? And you, like I said before, you've got to partner with companies that are going to help you get there, right? Which means, you know, thinking about what is this innovation going to bring me? Not what is it going to take away? Not who is it going to make uncomfortable? Um, Create a transition plan, you know, and, you know, everybody's kind of brought, you know, kind of the same types of ideas to the table, which is I want to have a connection with a donor and to do that, I've got to figure out some way of getting all that information about these donors and what they do and, you know, what class they were in at, you know, my private ed, you know, and, you know, how many events they've attended and what their preferences are and what they bid on and how they've donated. I need to get all that into one spot and then I can start to intelligently use that. So when someone asks Sarah, like, hey, I, we're interested in artificial intelligence, like, what can we do with it? We're like, well, do you even have data to like even use AI with, right? I mean, do you even have any history of that information? So that's kind of where we start with a lot of our clients is, is getting them just comfortable with letting go of a lot of the traditions that they think are the important parts of the traditions and really kind of focusing more on, you know, how, how can you advance to the next level with your donors? Thank you so much for sharing, Jeff. All right, Rebecca, anything you want to add to that? I agree. Like, you know, you want to, okay, so let me just say, omni-channel, absolutely, Sarah, that was my favorite thing I've heard. Because you can't, it's not just a one thing only you can do. You do need to talk to people and meet them where they are. So having said that, you do need to realize that some traditional fundraising practices you've used in the past, they just don't work anymore. And the amount of time it takes to implement them, you know, you've got to look at ROI. And whether you're a PTO or you're running a, you know, um, an alumni association, you do have to look at how much time you're putting into it. But having said that, know your, know your school, for instance, K through 12 schools, you know what? Some traditional methods still work. Like, for instance, uh, we offer, and this is very successful, a flyer with a QR code. So it's really simple because schools do often have in-person events, right? They do gather people together. So offer those traditional flyers where people, you know, but add the QR code, right? So up the technologies just a smidge. One thing one of our schools just did recently that kind of blew my mind because we're thinking all these, you know, traditional fundraising things are done. They gave out a flyer when people were picking up their kids at pickup time and they got a huge boost in their fundraising the the next couple of weeks. So we don't need to chuck everything out of the window. We really don't, but we do need to know and we do need to really sit and analyze what works, what doesn't. And I think that's the biggest part of it. Look at your fundraising, analyze what, you know, practices are working for you and wait. And, you know, just like Jeff said, maybe you do have to eliminate some things and it does make some people uncomfortable because people will adapt and you have to look at your, especially now, your parent group, parents are still going to be your number one um really fundraising source. Anyway, you slice it. They obviously they can go out and they can share, but but you need to allow them, you know, you need to look at them and you need to know what they're using, how they're using it. If, if texting is what, and I agree texting is a 
I'd say 99% open rate, then use that. Look at what's working and analyze it and don't be afraid to eliminate some things that you've done in the past and not just because you've done it. Sometimes you just have to reinvent yourself and you have to look forward and you have to work smarter. Wonderful. Thanks, Rebecca. All right, Jeff, I'm going to have you start us off with this one. What key performance indicators should schools focus on when evaluating the success of their fundraising campaigns? Yeah, that's good. Um, you know, when we do KPIs here at Hambid, we think of two types of KPIs. We think of what we call lead and lag measures. So a lot of organizations focus on what are called lag measures, which are the results of something that's happening. So it could be, you know, the total revenue generated. Um, it could be the total number of bids in an auction. Um, and there's some important ones there, but we like to track on that end, on the lag measure side, if we're talking about fundraising, we like to track engagement, Okay. Um, because engagement is what's going to drive revenue. Okay. So, you know, if we're talking kind of classic auction, we look at how many bids per active bidder. So if somebody's bidding, how many bids are they placing? I mean, we want to see certain numbers as a result of that, which tells us, A, you set the auction up correctly. B, you gave everybody enough time and chance to bid and, and C, you had, probably had decent enough stuff to bid on. Um, you see, you created what um, what we've been talking about here, and Sarah mentioned this concept of gamification, you've created competition inside of your event. Um, same thing would go with a peer-to-peer, -peer, right? It's not just how much money is this page raising, how many individual new donors did that page get? That's engagement. And then how many donations did that page get? Okay, that is also engagement, right? Um, active bidder rate, how many texts came in on an inbound keyword uh, text campaign, um, participation rate across the board, how many people showed up at your event, how many people donated, bid, pay, per, participate in the raffle, whatever, okay? So what would you measure on the lead side? What, what are lead measures? Lead measures are the things that we as charities and individuals and fundraisers actively have control over, okay? And so that might be, in this case, how many opportunities that I give people to give? You know, how many events did I run? Or... You know, how many times did I message them to keep them connected? So how many broadcasts am I sending out? How many emails am I sending out? How many texts am I sending out? Those are the things that every time you do that creates engagement. So, and that's even true at an event. Like we tell our clients all the time. I mean, the beauty of using something like mobile technology is, say you're doing it over the course of a week and you open your auction on like Tuesday or Wednesday, the events on Saturday, you can talk to them through the week. And every time you send them a message, they will pick their phone up out of their pocket, look at it and be like, oh, might as well check my bids. And they'll kind of go through the process. So those intentional things, you can correlate to what kind of results you're getting on the other side, on the lag side. Thanks, Jeff. All right, Sarah, over to you. Oh, yeah. I think Jeff covered a lot of the basic KPIs that I would have touched on. Um, I'd add participation in terms of, of our class numbers as a really big one. Um, seeing if we're able to, to track our, our parent participation, securing gifts for, for each grade, and then sort of compare our goals. I think I'd add, if we're wanting to start to get kind of fancy, we're then evaluating ROI on the tools required to get to these KPIs. Um, so what did it cost? What was my cost of donor acquisition to, to receive this donation? And by that, I sort of mean, what are the costs of my tools and which ones are 
the highest return on an investment for the dollars raised. And I think that's that's sort of your next step is if you're looking for for ways to grow and ways to really dig apart and sort of tear apart the whole system and figure out where you want to plug in new products or pull some out or find even redundancies are huge when we have uh, something called shelfware. Uh, that idea of I have, I've bought this technology 10 years ago, but I've never used it. And so now we just pay for it, but it's not really doing much for us. You got to do some evaluation. You've got to really go in there and see, um, how am I raising money? Where is it coming from? Um, Let's see here. Other KPIs, I, I would say it sort of depends on the school as well. And this might be a bit of a touch on the the convert. The question that came in here is that idea of small schools just getting started. A KPI for a school that's really just getting started might be we're really focusing on just getting people to the to the page, getting them to donate for the first time. Um, while as someone who is celebrating their 100th year and they have this, this idea of philanthropy exists and giving back to this community exists, maybe we're focusing on a dollar amount as our KPI. We're, we're not necessarily looking at 100% participation. That's great. But we are focused on a very specific dollar to reach an operating budget, to reach our scholarship goals, to reach a capital campaign or annual fund. So it's it's, it's KPIs, they vary. They're going to vary with each organization, I think. But participation, engagement, always the big ones we're looking to. Thanks, Sarah. All right. I do see a an audience question come in. This is from Dominic. And Rebecca, I'll have you start us off with uh, this question. What advice do you have for a very small school just starting to fundraise? My biggest piece of advice is look at your past fundraising, um, what you've done, and really analyze what works. Uh, often schools, especially in a smaller scale, sometimes do what's always been done because that's how we do it. No, don't do that. Analyze your fundraising in the past. Um, and then, you know, don't be afraid to try something new. But, you know, when we talk about KPIs too, you know, be realistic. Make sure you, you're doing your uh, running a fundraiser that, you know, may not involve, you may not have a lot of volunteers, for instance, right? So you need to have a more uh, technology-focused fundraiser to help you with that. Because often, you know, labor-intensive fundraisers sometimes are just not inefficient. You could raise more, you know, like with the handbed, for instance. I agree. You want to use that kind of technology. But again, analyze your fundraising See what your resources are and don't be afraid to try something new. And my other thing is do the research. Um, go to PTO Today. PTO Today has a wealth of information on fundraisers that you can use. And use free tools like ShopRaise because you can set it up and use it all year round. So that's my shameless plug right there. And it's free, by the way. Thanks, Rebecca. All right, Betsy, over to you. Any tips for those just starting to fundraise? Yeah, I think that if you if you don't have a development office in place and, and you're uh, <clears throat> assuming it's a K eight or K twelve K twelve um, independent school, um, there are so many great professional um, organizations that I would really encourage you to become a part of um, the NAIS National Association of Independent Schools, Case Council for Advancement and Support of Education, or two excellent organizations that um, you can kind of join for free, and they have um, <clears throat> scholarship opportunities for you to attend some amazing conferences online or in person that 
have still, uh, still some of the best fundraising advice I've ever gotten have come from those conferences. But there's also ways to just share resources with some of your fellow fundraisers with um, schools of all sizes. So I really encourage you to take a look at those, um, reach out and talk to some of your other counterparts, maybe in your in your town or your city. Um, and then also, you are probably able to tell which uh, family members, parents are going to be really involved and helpful to you as a development officer. Reach out to them, have co- take them to coffee, take them to lunch and say, we are just starting out. You know, we have this much to raise. We have this much to do. Um, I need you kind of on my team and, and they will likely be your ambassador and help you kind of spread the word and get even more folks on your team and on your side. Thanks, Betsy. All right. Unbelievably, the hour is going by so quickly. So we're going to wrap up this portion of the panel so we can stick to our schedule. I've had such a wonderful time hearing from our panelists today, and I'm hoping to get one final piece of insight from them all. And Sarah, I'll have you start us off with this question. What do you see as the future of school fundraising and how can schools get ahead today? What a tough one to end on. It's like the the big one. I would say... um, the future is is actually kind of what Betsy had me thinking about is this is really a team that regardless of if you have a one-person office or a 25-person office, this is a team effort to be able to build a culture of philanthropy and to build a culture of giving back. Um, and I, I think that's, that's sort of the future is where it used to be I'm the one person making all of the phone calls and all of the coffee meetings and all of the solicitations. It doesn't have to be like that. And I think oftentimes our communities are excited to get involved. They are excited to work alongside of you, whether it's a a parent or even a current student or a board member, ask them to be a part of your cause. And, And I think that there's so much success when we take on the lens of fundraising from a community perspective rather than just a one office perspective. Thanks, Sarah. All right, Betsy, thoughts on the future of school fundraising and how to get ahead today? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important to um, diversify funding sources um, with, I think, especially, you know, of course, as Rebecca said, as I've said, as many others said, you know, parents are going to be your number one, probably, um, source of gifts if you're talking about traditional independent schools. Um, but as more and more schools try to diversify um, and from a socioeconomic um, perspective and really um, encourage more uh, financial aid opportunities. And um, that means that, you know, it might, it be, it's important to be able to fund that. So even consider um, you know, grants and and foundation funding, which is something I'm working with a few um, private school clients on right now, actually. Uh, grandparents, you know, grandparents, like somebody said, aunts, uncles, people are willing to support their, um, you know, their family members. And even that could be a gift to the annual fund and, and not, you know, in, in addition to some of the other um, ways. So encourage kind of diversifying sources, uh, alumni, even young alumni, even very young alumni start, start then. So I think that that's just a a super important thing to think about. Um, in addition to obviously stewarding your, your, your parents and your your faculty and staff, but I do think that, uh, diversifying those sources is important. Wonderful. Thanks, Betsy or Rebecca thoughts on the future of school fundraising and how to get ahead today. Yes. And three words, research, invest, and organize. Uh, research your fundraising opportunities, um, join Facebook groups, uh, c- 
go to, you know, um, Betsy just gave you some like, really couple of great options to look, but look, research and see what is out there. And then don't be afraid to invest in technology because it's going to save you a lot of time in the long run. It's going to make you fundraise smarter. And then organize. Organize your fundraising. Um, you know, review past fundraising. Make sure you're doing things that are working. Are people burning out? And don't forget to look at your resources within your school community. You have people that are digital marketers. You have people that, you know, they're organizational gurus. Everybody kind of has their niche. And don't be afraid to ask people to just take a little small piece of it. Often people are afraid to get involved because they think they're going to be sucked into like hours and days of fundraising uh, help. But, you know, break it down, but organize it first. What does it look like? Look at your resources and don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, you're most of you are volunteers and it's okay. Ask for help. That's my big advice. Thanks, Rebecca. All right, Jeff, thoughts on the future and how to get ahead today? Yeah, I think all the answers are are spot on. I mean, you know, you got to think about diversifying your, your fundraising. And I think everybody would agree that, you know, having a more diverse source of places that you're getting funds would help. On the question is, is how do you do that? Um, you know, I think it's a combination of being willing to embrace technology, being willing to try things, um, not being fearful of possibly having some of those things fail. Um, that's how we learn. We learn mostly by trying to implement new technologies, new approaches, new strategies, new outreaches, um, and then learning from that. And then that learning is what's going to advance us even further. And then, and I would say, lastly, just partner with people who will help you with that. Um, you know, there are people like ShopRays or Hambit or any of these folks, you know, Gravity and, and whatnot. And all of us are out there on the edge thinking about what's coming next. How can our, our you know, charity clients and our other clients best use that technology? Um, what makes sense? What doesn't make sense? So we are going to mitigate that risk for you considerably if you're thinking about, oh my God, I don't know if I could really try something as advanced as that. Well, talk to one of us first, you know, and we can help you with that. Whether you end up using our technology or not, at least here at Hambit, we're always willing to kind of give you our opinion and, you know, kind of share with you what we think are best practices in the industry. And I say good luck with it. Yep. Great advice, Jeff. I agree. That's wonderful. Thanks, Jeff. All right. And with that, we have reached the end of our panel. And I want to give a big thank you to our panelists for sharing their insights today. I also want to give a big thank you to our audience. Thank you so much for your time. And I hope you enjoyed yourself and learned something that will benefit the work that you do on a daily basis. All right. That is it for me. It has been a pleasure speaking with you all. Have a nice rest of the day, everyone. Bye, everyone. See you guys. Thanks for tuning into this week's episode. We hope you discovered effective strategy for school fundraising and development. If you enjoyed our show, please take a moment to leave us a review. You can find us on Apple, Google, and Spotify. Don't forget to subscribe for more great content. And if you're a fan of video, check us out on YouTube. Until next time, happy fundraising. Happy fundraising.